0: Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever to the ages of all ages. Amen. So we started last week uh, with a, 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 an overview of the entire Old Testament and where Zachariah fits. Uh, Zachariah the prophet fits, and his prophecy fits in the entire history of the Old Testament. So we won't do that again today. Um, but basically, the people of Israel and Judah get carried away in captivity. The Israelites get carried away in captivity. They never come back. The, the people of the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, they get carried away in captivity in about 390-something, right? Daniel and his friends, Ezekiel, all those folks, that's, and they go and they become, you know, they get, get taken to Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldeans Is kind of the emperor of sort of the known world at the time, and they're enslaved there. And uh, Jeremiah prophesied that for seventy years they would be in captivity. And sure enough, at the end of those seventy years, they get um, at the end of those seventy years, uh, various other emperors that were sort of God-fearing and God-loving, although they were pagan. Some of the actually Darius, Cyrus, and Darius, and for both of them, actually, it's it's we don't actually know if they actually secretly believed or secretly worshipped the God of Israel. Uh, But like like Darius, after Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den and doesn't get eaten, he makes a decree right across the entire empire that no one is allowed to speak evil of the God of Daniel, and that the God of Daniel is to be worshipped. So. You wonder if he's ordering the entire empire sort of implicitly to worship the god of Daniel. He must be kind of worshiping him too. But we don't really know. We don't really know whether they moved away from paganism or not. But anyhow, they send Nehemiah back to build the wall, Ezra to build the temple. Ezra starts building the temple. The Samaritans come and tell, start talking smack about them and telling them we're going to send word back to the emperor, and tell him you're building your own nation, and you're going to revolt, they stop building the temple. For 15 years, they don't build the temple, and till Haggai, old man, maybe in his 70s, and Zechariah, young guy, come and prophesy. Haggai gives them a good slapping back and forth, and tells them you built paneled houses for yourselves, you live in luxury, and you've forgotten the Lord, right? You, 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 you put money in purses with holes, you eat and you're not filled, you drink and you're still thirsty. Why? Because you have neglected the Lord of hosts. And both of them use this term, the Lord of hosts, a lot. They're trying to reveal how glorious God is and how much we should really, uh, you know, revere him. Right in Zechariah, he begins, and we discussed this last week with a message of repentance return to me, and I will return to you. But we find Zechariah is encouraging the people to build as opposed to rebuking them to rip and for, you know and, and opening their eyes to repent. So it's the same message but a different flavor. And last week, we were saying that. That like a, like a strong word or a harsh word or a word, word of rebuke and a word of encouragement are sort of, the, are sort of the two ways that God guides us. And sometimes we need like the stick and sometimes we need the carrot. And God, as the wise vine dresser, he knows what he needs to do for us. So he sends us, at times he sends us a Haggai and at times he sends us a Zechariah. But Zechariah is a message of, um, uh, of encouragement and hope. And it's all about, the first nine of the 14 chapters are all about rebuilding the temple. The last five chapters are prophecies about the Messiah. And we talked about how to read this book personally. Last week, this is all a review of last week, really quickly. How to read the book personally, that God wants to build a temple for himself, which is you. In 1 Corinthians 3 and again in 1 Corinthians 6, St. Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells within you? And I confessed before you all that the temple of God, which once upon a time I had started to build in me, is kind of in ruin, is kind of not what it ought to be. And maybe I've gotten distracted for 15 years doing other stuff. And maybe God is calling me with a word of hope and encouragement today to rebuild, to rebuild the temple. And we talked about how almost everywhere where you read the word temple, house of God, Jerusalem, my city, uh, uh, you can probably put your name there instead. And that every time you do that, you'll notice that it's a word of hope and a word of joy and a, and a, and a word of comfort. Then, there, then we talked about how Isaiah gets a series of nine visions. They start in chapter one and they kind of go on. And we discussed the first couple of visions, the vision of the horses. It's very similar to the book of Revelation, the vision of the four horsemen, but it's sort of like four horsemen and then some here. There's four horsemen and then an army of horsemen behind them. And we also talked about a vision of four horns that came up. And last week's talks are on our podcast and they're on YouTube. And if you missed last week, I was deeply encouraged, um, and I hope that you, that you would be as well. So let's go on. So now we're at we're going to cover, God willing, chapter two and three today. Some more visions, okay? And like I was saying, all these visions are are words of encouragement from Zechariah to tell the people to to roll up their sleeves, tie up their boot slacks, and let's go and let's build. This is going to be good. Haggai was telling them, why haven't you built? Zechariah is saying, come on now, we can do this. Let's go. Let's build. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be great, right? So we'll just get started um, gently with uh, with, uh, um, Zechariah chapter 2. And we were kind of going verse by verse. You know, we're not stopping at everything. If you have any questions, or if there's some things that I gloss over and I didn't address, or something which is kind of stands out to you, feel free to put your hand up and to ask a question, um, if you wish. Zechariah chapter two. Then I raised my eyes and look, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, "Where are you going?" He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is, what is its width and what is its length. Now, I want to ask you a question. Suppose you came home one day, and you found some person, like measuring out your windows, you know what I mean, how wide they are, how long, you know. And you ask this person, who are you? And they said, they said oh, I'm a... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm just measuring out the windows. You're like, oh, uh, wh- 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 what do you, wh- why? Oh, like to get, put some new uh, blinds or curtains or something, or to put some new blinds or curtains in. You'd be like, uh, did anybody ask you to do that? Like, And why would you be so surprised? Because it's not their home, <laughs> Right? <laughs> You're not expecting some stranger to walk in and do home rentals or home furnishings in your home. Why? Because it's your home, right? Necessarily, if you happen to be watching a sitcom from the middle of a TV show from the middle of it and some guy is measuring things out and, and you know, trying to determine whether we should knock this wall down or not or whatever, you would automatically presume that he was the owner of the house if he didn't look like he was a builder, Right? and necessarily from the very first from the very start of it you see God is taking ownership now who is supposed to rebuild the the israelites but god is taking ownership of his temple and so he is measuring we talked about how uh, when it says the angel of the lord sometimes oftentimes um it's it's talking about a prefigurement, an old testament prefigurement of Christ. In, the, in, the, in, the, in chapter one, there was this beautiful conversation between the angel of the Lord and the Lord of hosts, where the angel of the Lord was telling the Lord of hosts, How long, O Lord, will you leave your temple like this? And why have you allowed the people who destroyed it not to be judged? Like the the kind of the the kind of like epic old question, why do the why do the evil prosper? You know, And we find like the angel of the Lord, which is like Christ, is interceding for the, the people of Israel before the Lord of hosts. Anyhow, so the first thing we can get from here is God is taking ownership. Never believe that your spiritual life is something for which you are entirely responsible. You are a co-worker with God. We are his vineyard, and he is the wise vine dresser. The Father is the wise vine dresser. The Holy Spirit delights to work in your life and mine. Trust him. Trust him. Doesn't mean that we should, doesn't mean that we should become lackadaisical or 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 we shouldn't take responsibility. No, absolutely, we should take responsibility. But it means that we shouldn't we shouldn't feel burdened, we shouldn't feel burdened that, our, that 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 the our eternal fate is solely up to us. We work with him. another thing that we get from this business of measuring, and we discussed it last week, so i won 't harp on it too much, is that he's measuring he he, he comes out with a it says here. Um, uh, with a measuring line. In in chapter one, it called a, a surveyor's line, like a survey is like a plan. God has a plan. He has a plan for your life and for mine. And so 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 don't don't be afraid and don't feel like it all depends like it all depends on you. In verse three, it says, "And there was an angel who talked to me, going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him." who said to him, run, speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her and I will be the glory in her midst. So the angel of the Lord tells another angel to go run and tell Zechariah, I'm gonna rebuild the temple, I'm gonna rebuild my city and it's going to overflow with people so much so that it wouldn't make sense to put a wall around it. And he says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. Why not have a wall around it? Well, first of all, like it says, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow multitudes upon multitudes. And we'll see a little bit further as well, a little, another reference to that, right? Another reference to, to, to Gentile nations being, uh, being part of it, right? Another reason that you build walls for a city is they serve as a defense, right? But in the presence of holiness, in the presence of God, in the presence of restoration, of things being as they ought to be, there's no no need for a wall. If evil is destroyed, annihilated, gone, then who needs a wall? It's the same reason we take off our shoes when we stand in a holy place, we don't take off our shoes because our shoes are dirty and, oh my goodness, I might dirty God. Like if God is so fragile that he can't deal with a little bit of dust or a little bit of grime on the bottom of my shoes, that he must, needs to be protected by certain rituals, then what, that I would be, I would be a, little, a, a little bit afraid if God is so fragile Rather, it's not that at all. I mean, that's what I believed for about 30 years of my life until I asked the question to somebody who could give me an answer. Why do we take our shoes off in a holy place? Well, because Moses took his shoes off when he stood in a holy place before the burning bush. That's great, fantastic. Why did Moses take his shoes? God told him to. Why did God tell him to? God told him to because he told him, look, look Moses, look buddy, by privilege you can take your shoes off. You don't have to wear your shoes because this is a holy place. Because see, when God cursed the ground for Adam's sake, He told him, by, you will till the ground and thorns and thistles it will bear for you. So that lends us to believe that there were no thorns and thistles before the curse, before sin, before disobedience. That's what brought the thorns and thistles. So Adam, walking out of that conversation with God, stepped on a thorn and said, Ouch! And figured maybe I should protect my feet. And so he started wearing shoes. But in the presence of God, in the presence of holiness, in the presence of of restoration, in the paradise state, there is no threat. So there is no need for defense. There is no need for a wall to defend us. He himself is our wall. He himself is, is that fire that defends us. Another reason is this temple that God is building is the body of Christ, is the church. The church has no defense. I hope the uh, federal government isn't watching this video because we just off- applied for a federal grant for, uh, you know, uh, security, improvements of security systems in uh, uh, places of worship or whatever. There was, a, there was a federal grant. Somebody brought it to my attention, so we applied for it, right? Every now and again, somebody would forget the front door open or a side door open or something, and they'd come and tell me, and Father John, we can't do this, and we have to have rules, or this and that, or whatever. I'd tell them, don't worry, don't worry, we have a security guard. And they'd tell me, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, 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 we got this, you know, pardon my French, we got this big black guy. He's huge. Actually, he's got a criminal record. I mean, this guy... Is not to be messed with, you know, right? He's about six foot six or six foot eight, you know. He's got eyes that would make you run for your life. His name is St. Moses, (laughs) right? I say it in a joking way, but I want to tell you something. The church has never been on the defense. And this is another thing I misunderstood for most of my life. See, the first time the word church appears in the New Testament, Jesus says it. People are like, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Well, that's great, but Jesus kind of likes the church. It was actually his idea, right? Because the first person to mention church is actually Jesus. But anyways, that's besides our, our point right now. Jesus asks his disciples, who do, you, who do men say that I am? They say some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some say this. Some. He says, who do you say I am? St. Peter just blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he tells him, upon this rock, and we believe that to be not necessarily the person of Peter, but the faith that he declared that Jesus is the Son of God, I build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I always understood the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, like if Hades tries to penetrate the church, it won't be able to make its way in but that's not what it, the sentence says. And I must have read it at least a hundred times. It says, Upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So who, who has gates? Hades. So who's being invaded? Hades. The church has always been the invader, not the invaded. The church doesn't need walls, because the church is going out we, Walls would be a hindrance to us because walls would mean that we have gates and that would mean people could only exit through the gates. We're not worried about people exiting through the gates. Let them exit from wherever they exit. Let them go. Let them invade Hades. One of my favorite missionaries has this quote that uh, sends shivers down my spine every time I read it. Let's see if I remember it correctly. He says, most people would like like to live within earshot of a church steeple. I would rather set up a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Most people would like to live within earshot of a church steeple. I would rather set up a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And I tell you, some of the people here in our parish, in our church, have learned how to serve vulnerable people in the heart of hell it's not easy it's not easy but that's the spirit of the church the spirit of the church is a going church not a staying church another one of my favorite quotes uh, is that the measure of a church is not its seating capacity but its sending capacity how many missionaries and servants and volunteers does it send out into the world? We don't need walls. We don't need walls. They would be a hindrance to us. Because we're going out. Something dawned on me the first time I lived by myself in an area where there was a, a, a petty crime rate that was a little bit high. What if I get robbed? What if like, somebody breaks into my place and robs me? And I was sitting there on my couch, and all of a sudden, the thought beat was so real to me, I felt really vulnerable. And I just kind of looked around my place, and then I realized, well, hold on a second, I don't have anything anyone would want. <laughs> you know, it would be such a disappointment to them if they broke in, found me sitting on the couch. And then I started thinking to myself, what would I say? Like, what would I say if, I got, if somebody held me to, at, at knife point and told me, give, you all, give me all your money? I thought to myself, well, the smart thing would be to just give him your money. Like, you know, being however much money is in your wallet short is better than being stabbed. Okay, everybody knows that. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, hold on, but th- hold on a second. But then the guy would be a thief. Well, that would be bad, right? Well, what, if, what if I just asked him, sir, what do you want? And then just gave it to him and told him, this is not, put the knife away, put the knife away. this is a gift, okay, this, you didn't take this by force, this is a gift, I want this to be a gift to you, I don't want this to be held against you, and if anyone would ask me, this would be a gift, I hadn't watched Les Miserables by that point, but there's a beautiful scene in Les Miserables about that, the church is on the offense, not the defense, the church don't need no walls, Yes, we're in the process of putting in security cameras because we're practical people and we applied for this grant and so on. But in in principle, in essence, we're a going church, not a staying church. They're walls of fire. They're dynamic walls. They're spiritual walls. We're not worried about people walking in and walking out, stealing a coffee machine. You know, we're worried about demons. Entering into the church with us. I'm worried about a spirit of selfishness. A spirit of laziness. A spirit of pride. A spirit of jealousy. That's what I'm afraid is going to. And no video cameras. No surveillance cameras are going to find that. Only St. Moses will. Right? We need walls of fire. We need. We need spiritual security guards. For our temple. Be it this house of worship or be it my soul i need saints i need a guardian angel i need i need heaven to be protecting me i need walls of fire and the best part of this whole verse is when he says and i will be the glory in her midst you're going to find he he's going to say in her midst or in the middle of it or dwell in her a, a bunch of times today right In the book of Revelation, if you are open for us, Mark Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, and verse 23, you'll find, you'll find, remember we said another way of interpreting the rebuilding of this temple is, is in, in regards to kind of the second coming, and like what God will assemble all the believers and build them into his, his kingdom, Right? And so speaking about, and I'll tell you a little secret. Every time I get discouraged, I dis, like despair beyond all hope. And that's it. I'm ready to pack it up. I'm ready to find myself a bridge I can jump off of. I'm like, I'm done, right? A friend of mine gave me this advice. I just put every, turn my phone off. I turn everything off and I just sit and I read Revelation twenty, twenty one, and 22. The last three chapters. You can read verse chapter 19 as well so encouraging to see what the to see what the end product is going to look like so here's a, an image of the end product he's saying and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city the holy jerusalem descending out of heaven from god having the glory of god just like what it said In Zechariah. Her her light was the most of a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Jasper is sort of like a reddish-brownish color. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. In heaven, there are no light switches, because it's bright all day long, shining with the light of God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that that beautiful? That's what the temple of God is supposed to look like. No artificial light. No temporary light. The sun is here, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, depending on the seasons. And then it gets dark. You kind of wait for the moon to come out or the stars. Right? No. Continuous light. Right? In verse 23, the city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Hear these words about yourself. Don't, don't Yes, you hear them about the heavenly Jerusalem, what heaven will look like, and so on. But about myself. There will be no more darkness, there will be no more ups and downs, no more good days and bad days, right? Just glory, just unceasing, unending glory, no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and the servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Glory. Glory. You know what the purposes of uh, Zechariah chapter 2 and 3 are? I think. I think. I didn't read this, didn't read this anywhere, but I think that Zechariah wanted to give them an idea of what the end game is to encourage them. Guys, let's build because it's going to be great. Guys, let's build, guys, folks, congregation, let's build the temple of God. My soul, a home for him, because it's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be bright. It's going to be shining. Now we're at verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He's saying, up, up. What what would you be saying, up, up? If you're saying it to somebody, what would that imply? That they're down, down, right? So if you're down, down, God is saying to you, up, up, rejoice, he's saying to them, right? He says to them, rejoice, flee from the land. And he tells them to flee. Sometimes we feel that fleeing is, whether in spiritual life or in whatever, is kind of um, dishonorable. I should stand and fight. No, not in, mo- in most of the time, nine times out of ten in spiritual life, you should flee. Jesus fled Herod. Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. St. Anthony, St. Athanasius writes about St. Anthony, as the era of martyrdom ended and the empire became Christian, Anthony fled to the desert. He knew that times of peace and complacency were coming. Anthony fled to the desert. St. Paisa, beautiful story. It was her feast day last Thursday. St. Paisa was born to Christian parents, wealthy Christian parents. And she, uh, her parents died somehow nearly the same time. And they left her with a massive inheritance. She gave lots of money to monasteries, to rebuilding monasteries and this and that and so on. And somehow in her youth, she kind of wayward. And her home that she had previously opened for strangers and the poor, she opened it as a a place of harlotry, a brothel. And um, the monks heard this news and they were sad. And they all fasted and prayed for her. And St. John the Short got a vision to go to St. Paisa and rescue her and bring her to the desert to save her soul. So he went to her and he sat with her. And when she saw him, she was shocked. When he sat with her, he told her, "What, what has Jesus done to you that you have done this to him? And she just broke down and cried. And she told him, do you think God could ever accept my repentance? And he told her, repent and see. It's your only hope, repent and see. I don't know. So they left. He said, but you have to come with me. So they left Alexandria. It was evening. And they started journeying through the desert. And night fell upon them. They can't travel in the desert at night. You would know where you're going. And so he made a little spot for her to sleep. And he made another spot for himself to sleep. And then he woke up at midnight to pray the midnight prayer the way he always did. And he saw her praying. And he saw her engulfed in light. And then he saw the light kind of like go up to heaven. And he heard a voice saying to him, I have heard the prayers and the repentance of Paisa, my servant. And her repentance is accepted. So he woke up in the morning and he found she, her, she had died. She had, her soul had left her body St. Paisa fled fornication and all of this, the guidance of St. John the Short and fled to the desert. The verse here is telling us, those of you who are still in Babylon, remember last week when we were talking, we are saying there's probably several million of them in captivity, but only 50,000 of them went back. And we talked a little bit about why, about how they, they got comfortable. They were living a very dire life in captivity. They were captives but they got used to it, rather than go back and build Jerusalem. Sometimes we're in a bad state, and we get comfortable, and we just stay in our low, depressed state. We don't The fear of the unknown is almost worse than the s- state we're in, or at least it would seem so to us. Zechariah is telling you and me, and the spirit is telling you and me, up, up, Come on, let's go, Let's escape. Let's escape Babylon. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Now, if you've got a pen, this is one of those things that you underline, that you put stars next to, that you highlight in yellow and circle. This is one of the things that you memorize. Zechariah 2.8, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. So, I'm, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I never was. Ophthalmology is similar to dentistry. It's like one of those things that's part of medicine, but it's so far from me- the rest of medicine that unless that's what you do, you learn it one week and you forget it for the rest of your life. So I had to go back and read, what the heck is an apple of an eye? Well, it's the pupil. So when you look, if you got somebody sitting next to you, everybody turn to somebody next to you and look into their eyes. Okay? You look into their eyes. It's the... It's the, black, it's the black circle in the middle, okay? That's the pupil. That's covered with a very thin layer called the cornea. Your cornea is the only part of your eye which has sensation. And that's why if, you know, you poke yourself in the eye, you try to put contacts on, you try to put mascara on, whatever, you're going to blink, you know? haven't tried the mascara yet, but I've tried all the other things, and it makes you blink. Why? Well, because it actually has the highest concentration of nerve endings in your entire body is your cornea. Why? So that you don't lose your eyes, so you don't poke them out by accident, or somebody else poke them out for you by accident, right? The most innervated area, the, the thing that is the most sensitive. So God is saying that he who touches, the, the, like touches my cornea, the my pupil, which you wouldn't touch your pupil really, you touch your cornea, he who touches you' is like somebody touching my? It's like somebody poking me in the eye, right? To understand this, what would the opposite of this be? Something calloused. you know what I mean? So if you have calluses on your toes or I used to play guitar hundred years ago and I had calluses on my hands from the strings, right? an acoustic guitar. So what, what do calluses do? Like they make you not feel, you know? And so when you have calluses, you know you don't, you don't feel feel as well because that skin is dead so that would be the opposite of this so god is the opposite of calloused towards you and me someone will say sometimes it's an expression you can say oh that was calloused that was cold-hearted like that does that person not have feelings so the, uh, the, uh, god is telling you and me the, the my deepest sensitivity is towards you anybody touches you it's like they stuck their finger in my eye right many times God is very patient in our suffering and we would really wouldn't mind if he hurried it up a little bit and we feel maybe that God has forgotten us or God is far maybe God just doesn't feel what I feel this verse is telling us very much the opposite Anything that touches you is like something that touches the apple of my eye. The first part of the verse, though, says, he sent me. Who's been sent? Jesus. Jesus is the one who is sent. He sent me for what? For glory. I've said this many times before, but it can't be said enough. God has an addiction. We all have addictions. Okay, God has an addiction. God is addicted to glory. To glorifying you and me. And it's almost like he's willing to do it at any cost. And sometimes we're like, God, God, enough glory. I've had enough. I've had enough suffering. I've had enough pain. You know, I know no pain, no gain, but like, hey, I've had enough. I've had enough pain. God loves to glorify us and be for us to be glorified with him. So he almost declares here the purpose of Jesus' coming, of Jesus being sent, and it's for glory. Now, every time in the church we say glory we do the sign of the cross. Why? Because the church is trying to to instill in us, to condition us to know that glory and the cross come hand in hand. The moment, and we'll see this again, we'll come up again at least once or twice, the, 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 the time when Christ was the most glorified is on the cross. The most glorious act in human history is Jesus dying on the cross for us. The only door to the resurrection was the cross. People don't resurrect unless they're dead. They're going to have to die to resurrect. They always go hand in hand. Always, always. Jesus was sent for glory. In John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Just a little bit before that, in John 12, 27, he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus is troubled. And he says, shall I say, Father, save me? No, but it's for this reason that I came. We see that, that Jesus had a clear purpose before his eyes to suffer and to be glorified for us and that we, may be, that we might suffer with him and be glorified with him, like it says in Romans 8.17. And then he says here, I have been sent after glory. To whom? Whom have you been sent to? To the nations which, which plunder you. What? I thought you were going to be sent to us. He says, I was sent to the nations which plunder you. What does plunder mean? somebody who plunders you is somebody like after a war they take the, the, the victors take all of your they take all the good stuff they take all, the, all your good stuff back with them it could include stuff it could include money it, can, it, it could include land or it could, it could include people the word plunder you is very harsh the ones who 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 took our women and children into slavery, raped our women, enslaved our children. You were sent to them? Yes, I was sent to them. Why? To overcome them with His love. To overcome them with His love. Then there's no more enemy. There's a beautiful story about Elisha. There isn't enough time for it right now. But basically... Elisha overcomes the army of the Syrians not by killing them but by bringing them into the blinding them all bringing them then into the capital city into the citadel opening their eyes feeding them dinner treating them well and sending them home the end of the story is and the raiders of Syria did not harass Israel anymore for that generation those men didn't have it in them to harass Israel anymore. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Saint Paul tells us in Romans twelve, verse nine: For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So those who plundered us, after Jesus is sent to them, will become spoil to us. Spoil is another word for plunder. It's the same idea. Booty. It's all the same thing, right? The victors get to take all the good stuff, right? So after Jesus is sent to them, the people who plundered us, they will become our spoils. What does that mean? Remember, we're saying the church is evangelical. The church is going out. The church is going to hell to steal souls from hell. The people, this beautiful... Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stories from the apartheid. Beautiful stories from World War II, beautiful stories from the persecution of Christians in China of how those Christians in all of those different circumstances forgave their captors and forgave those who tortured and tormented them in such a genuine way that they they, they turned to Christ. Because it's inhuman. It's not human to forgive somebody who did inhuman things to you. People who were raped and mutilated forgave their aggressors. So those who plundered them became a plunder for them. Through what? Through the love of Christ. It's not human. It can't be human. It can only be divine. And that's why... When somebody witnesses it firsthand and it's genuine, they're convinced. They're convinced. There's no convincing to be done. They see it. They are a first-hand witness of it. Verse 10, Sing, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Again, this business of dwelling. God does not want to be a visitor in your life. Uh. Back when I was in medicine, I would do rotations sort of all across the country. I was in Halifax, and I was going to Calgary to go do a rotation there. And I needed to set up some kind of housing. I couldn't find somewhere to live. This was before Airbnb and such, not to date myself or anything, right? Anyhow, uh, a, a, a friend that I was living with in the house that I was living in in Halifax told me, hey, my dad's best friend, blah, 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 they have a house across the street from the Children's Hospital in Calgary. Why don't you live there? I was like, sure. She calls them up, whatever. I, I go. Uh, you know, I got myself a rental car. I do not remember what I did. Maybe I drove from Vancouver to Calgary. I can't remember. Anyways, I had a car. Show up at their house. They had left me a key under the mat and instructions which room was mine. Make yourself at home. So I went. I put my bag down and this and that. And, uh, and then I went and I did a few groceries, sort of like some non-perishables or whatever that I could keep in my room. And I came home, and I found them cooking dinner, and they were very kindly cooking for three, to include me. That was very nice of them, man and his wife. And and so after dinner, I kind of asked them, so, like, sort of what are the rules of engagement here? I'm going to be living with you for a month. Like, what kind of rent do you want or whatever, and this and that. And they said, look, any friend of, I can't remember her name, the young woman that was living in the same house as me in Halifax is a friend of ours. Uh, We don't want anything there was a kind of awkward silence. I felt kind of awkward not to pay something. I'm living at these people's house. And then the guy leans over to me and he goes to me, look, the only thing I'm going to ask you is don't be a guest. Because if you're a guest, then we have to like dance all around you. Just be part of the family, you know? You drink some milk, you finish the milk, just replace it. Like you can eat whatever you want, you can drink whatever you want. Yeah, well, do what you do at home, right? But if you're a guest, then, then we have to act all... Formal around you. Just be you, you know? You want to do the dishes, do the dishes. You don't want to do them, don't do them. Like, just, just, just be yourself. So we can just be ourselves and everybody can be okay. God doesn't want to be a guest. He doesn't want to be a guest in your life. He doesn't want the guest treatment. You know the guest treatment? You, you roll out the red carpet for them. and you, God doesn't want that. Just be you. But he also wants to dwell there like permanent resident not visitor visa you know he's here and he's here to stay we talk about visitations of grace or visitations of the spirit and that we could talk about that but god doesn't want to be a visitor in your life and in mine he wants a dwelling place he wants a home in john 15:4 he says abide in me and i in you If you abide in me, my words abide in you. And John 17, 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. Like, God wants us to abide in him, but he also wants to abide in us. Like, I picked the verses that don't say, Abram, make sure you abide in Jesus. No, I picked the verses that say, Abram, Jesus is saying, I want to abide in you. Put your name there. Jesus wants to take up residence with you, in you. In Revelation 21, 19, we hear this description of the, uh, of the foundation stones of the temple of God. And in, in, on, in Bright Saturday, we read the entire book of Revelation and at certain parts, we sing like a chorus, like a response. So in Revelation 21, verse 19, it says, The first foundation was Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third Chalcedony. And then the people respond and they sing, Our Savior in its midst, crowning with honor those who love Him. Then it says, and the fourth foundation of this, and the fifth foundation is this, and the sixth foundation was that. And then the people sing again, Our Savior in its midst, crowning with honor those who love him. And four times we sing that chorus. Our Savior in its midst, crowning with glory and honor those who love him. And we'll get to some more crowning stuff in a bit. Verse 11 says, "Many." in Zechariah uh, chapter 2, Many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Again, sent me. Again, dwell in her midst. I had a whole bunch of other cross-references to share with you, but I'm going to just kind of keep rolling. In Hosea chapter 2, I can't, I can't hold myself. I can't resist. I have to share this with you. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. In Hosea chapter 2, God is describing someone that he was engaged to who betrayed him, who was unfaithful, chronically unfaithful, Right? And he says, beautifully says, and I will woo her back to the wilderness with words of love. says beautiful things. But in Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 he says, and I will sow her for myself in the earth. I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. The people who are not his people. He will make them his people, and he will be their God, and he will dwell in their midst. This is God. This is God. Don't say I've been long, I've been long time I've been away from God. I've strayed so far away. I've no. This word is for you, it's for me. You see, in the next, in the next uh, chapter, God willing, we'll get we'll get to it and we'll be able to enjoy it. You'll you'll see it's 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 written for those of us who are in pardon my French crappy circumstances. Excrement-covered circumstances. Verse 12, And the Lord will take possession of Judah as an inheritance in the Holy Land. He will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. He is aroused from His holy habitation. God is like awoken. Somebody's awoken the bear. You know, and He wants to take up residence in his his new house. This is the vision of the measuring line and the vision of the future joy of Zion, which will be the joy of all nations, including the nations that previously had attacked and harassed Jerusalem. That was chapter 2. Chapter 3. If you have any questions or anything, please feel free to raise your hand, ask anything as we go. This is the vision of the high priest. So in this vision... Zechariah chapter 3, he sees the high priest at that time, his name was Joshua, he sees him standing in rags, and they're filthy rags, but the word filthy there, the Hebrew for it, is literally like excrement covered. So if you've ever felt that your situation is just, you fill in the blank, (laughs) right, This is speaking to you and speaking to me. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Anytime it talks about a priest standing before God, that means he's serving. So he might have had a vision of him here standing before the altar or standing before the temple or standing before. So imagine like Zachariah sees the temple now built in all of its glory and the high priest standing before the temple and he's wearing rags covered in. Crusted old poo. Like some, something's not right. And the last vision was all full of glory, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So he gives here the, this. Now all of a sudden, it went from him standing in the temple to it looks like a courtroom, right, where you have Joshua standing in his crappy rags, standing next to him the accuser Satan standing before the judge right? The defendant is on one side, the prosecution and the judge. That's the image he's creating for us, right? I want to share with you one of my favorite verses, another one to, to underline, right? I, I, I just have to share something with you. I have a zillion of these pens littered around my house, these little multicolor pens, okay? I underline the promises in one color and the commandments in another color, right? it's it's so and then other verses i like in a third column a bit anal retentive don't mind me and i use a little ruler and you know but but you do you right you do you right don't be a guest you do you but underline this isaiah 43 26 god is saying to you and me put me in remembrance let us contend together come let's arm wrestle god says state your case that you may be acquitted now God has taken me to court and he's saying state your case. Now who's going to win that? God obviously. I'm going to come out guilty. He says that you may be acquitted. God is saying I know I know what the verdict is going to be already. I know the verdict. You're going to be acquitted. Just don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to come and stand before God. You will be acquitted. All of us say, if I go and stand before the judge and I know I've done a terrible crime and I'm not planning to lie, like I'm screwed. So it would be better for me to, to run and hide. You say, no, don't run and hide. You did a terrible crime. Yes. Come state your case before the judge. Yes. Don't lie. No, don't lie. You'll be acquitted. Doesn't add up, right? It doesn't add up. Whenever you read something and you find yourself saying, this doesn't add up, know that an unseen grace is at work. This is the chapter of grace. All of these chapters have been very gracious, but this chapter 3 is very, very, very gracious. So Satan is the opposer or the accuser. In Revelation twelve ten. he's described as the, the accuser of our brethren who accuse them before God day and night. With Job, in Job chapter 1 and 2, he goes and accuses Job to God. The only reason he likes you is because you keep spoiling him, giving him all this good stuff. And there's this back and forth between God and Satan. The word Satan itself is not a proper name. It's not like John or Monica, right? It's a title, the opposer or the accuser, the opposition. That's who he is. He's the naysayer, you know? You want to see what Jesus does with accusers? Open John 8, verse 10. This is what Jesus does with accusers. Jesus takes accusers and he says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Takes the accusers and he shuts their mouths. never be afraid of the accuser even if you know you ought to be guilty because God has already accounted for that never be afraid of the courtroom because you have an advocate like we read last week and we'll mention it again today 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 1 John 2.1, write this down. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate. He is our defender. Joshua is standing, you and I are standing in poop-crusted old rags that aren't even enough to cover our nakedness, and we're ashamed, and we're stinky, Don't be shy to come and stand before him. How does he advocate for us? Look at Romans 4.25. Sorry for all the jumping around, but it's just so beautiful. Who has, speaking about Jesus, who was delivered up to the cross because of our offenses and was raised up for our justification. He was crucified for our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. How does he How does he do it? How does he manage to acquit me when I'm guilty? Look at Colossians 2:13. How does he shut the mouth of the accuser? Colossians 2 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a pub- public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. He's taken the accusation against you and he nailed it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Jesus was nailed to the cross. So the accusation which was against you and was against me was written on what? On him. And he himself was nailed to the cross. That he might die and that he might rise again and raise us up with him and so he has so he's he's taken he's taken that piece of evidence out of the prosecution's hands and now they have nothing they have nothing to say now here they are standing in public in court with nothing question Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna zip along here because there's so many beautiful things, and we don't wanna we don't wanna we don't wanna miss them all. And the Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not the brand plucked from the fire? You'll remember in Jude, there's this contention between Satan and Archangel Michael over the body of of Moses, and Moses and and. Archangel Michael rebukes Satan says, The Lord rebuke you. So here, the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan by saying, The Lord rebuke you. Again, we find here the persons of the Trinity very obvious, that the the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Lord Jesus Christ, does not take judgment into his hand, but leaves judgment to the Lord of hosts, signifying the Father. Even Jesus doesn't take judgment into his hand. Let let us not judge anybody. Judgment and accusation is a demonic behavior. Intercession is an angelic behavior. And he says, the one whom I have chosen, if God chose you, who can choose against you? Like if God has chosen you, like in Romans 8:33 e it says who shall bring a charge against God's elect those chosen by God it is God who justifies who is he who condemns if God has justified you who can condemn you if the judge has acquitted you who can condemn you we ought to have all confidence and all boldness to come and stand before God and the brand plucked from the fire is like a, a brand is like a, a strand of hay so a strand of hay was in the fire. If we put hay in the fire, disintegrate, right? It'll burn in seconds. But it was quickly, like, for it not to burn, what would happen? Someone would have to quickly swoop in and pull it out of the fire. Here, fire is always maybe symbolic of, of suffering, maybe a cleansing suffering, but nonetheless suffering. Maybe in their, in their context here, captivity, for you and me, can be any, any suffering that we're in. Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. This is the excrement covered, the Hebrew word means. Very shameful. In Exodus 28 and 30, it talks about how the, the priests had to be cleanse themselves. And, and it said, in, in, in Exodus 28 says, And you shall make for them hats for glory and for beauty. And a little further down, and you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. And a little further down, if saying if they don't wear these things and do everything the right way when they come into the holy place, do this, like they have to do this so they should, that they should not incur iniquity lest they die. So when God was giving Moses the vestments of the priesthood and what the priest should wear and this and that and so on, Exodus 28, 39 through 43, He told him they should have a turban and this and that and give them trousers to cover their nakedness and this and that and they have to wear it lest they incur iniquity upon themselves and they die. It was punishable by death for them not to to be dressed appropriately before the Lord of hosts. This isn't a plug for people to wear certain clothes when they come to church. One of the things I love the most about our church is people feel comfortable to come as they are. But The point is is that the state that Joshua was in was punishable by death. The state that I'm in, when I look at myself in the mirror and I recognize the depth of my fallenness and I feel this is is punishable by death, that's the state Joshua is in. And then in Exodus 30, he talks about Moses had to build a bronze laver, a a bronze bath. Um, They had to wash themselves in a specific way as they enter the temple. Why? let them let them wash with water lest they die so they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die he says it twice now Joshua's his 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 robes are all torn and tattered he's covered in poo basically like this guy is a done deal this guy is dead meat right is the image that we have that we have here verse 4 Zechariah chapter 3 verse then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with, with rich robes. Take away his filthy rags. Give him rich robes. What is, who do you remember who was told, the father called the servants and told them, Take away his dirty garments. Give, yeah, the prodigal son. Give him, when I went back and read it, Luke 15, 22, Give him the best robe. God spares no expense. Right? Again, we find ourselves naked and ashamed. We find ourselves in a disgraceful state and God has covered us. Not just covered our nakedness. No, He gave us the best robe in the whole household. Which was usually given to the firstborn son. The firstborn son was not necessarily the one who was born first. It was the one to whom would get the birthright. Remember Jacob and Esau and all of that and the birthright. And And why was the birthright so important? Because you got the, the the first blessing of the father and you got a double share of the inheritance. So if there were like three sons, the first one would get, you divide it in four, the first one would get a double portion and the each the other two would get a quarter. So the first one would get half and the other two would get a quarter each, right? So it was a big deal being the firstborn. It was a big deal getting the robe of many colors. Joseph, was the one who got the firstborn status. That's why his brothers aided him, right? The, his dad didn't just give him fancy clothes. No, his dad gave him, they were really rich. His dad gave him double what the other brothers got, right? No, matter, no wonder they were jealous, right? No wonder the older, the older brother of the prodigal was jealous. Look at grace, grace upon grace, up, not just forgiveness, grace don't just, okay, he's naked and he's his rags. Okay, cover him up with something. Uh, cover, uh, stop looking at him. It's that's, that's rude. Uh, cover him up with something. No, cover him with the best robe. Give him a double portion of the inheritance. But he's the high priest. He's covered in poo, he's rags. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. I don't think I've said the word poo this many times in, in a sermon in my entire life. Right. Isaiah 61:10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Like what expense suppose a, man, a young man or a young woman, have all the money in the world, what expense would they spare on their wedding day? Nothing. Nothing. God, the richest of the rich, will spare nothing. As a husband decks himself with ornaments, bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, so has he clothed you, With garments of salvation and covered you with the robe of righteousness, you and I who were in shoddy rags, covered in poo. What grace! What grace! Now, it's talking about the priest. What's this business of the priest? Jesus is the only high priest, and we all are sharing in his priesthood. He is the head, and we are his body. So in as much as he is a priest, we are all members of his priesthood. In First Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is in 1 Peter 2, 9, where he calls us a royal priesthood. You're going to say, well, that's in the New Testament. How would Zechariah have known that? In the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, it says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It says it again in Isaiah and again in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and chapter 20. You can see this theme of us participating in the priesthood of Christ in the intercessory act, the act of intercession of christ is is spread throughout scripture now here's the climax of this joshua bit that like the, the 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 apex of it like this is where this is where you thought we were soaring where we have one more station one more stop before we go completely out of orbit right verse five and i said let them put a clean turban on his head So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. What does this say? I know you and I don't really wear turbans, and so, you know, being offered a turban isn't really, wouldn't be a big deal to you. It would be kind of awkward if somebody gave you a turban to wear. But a, a turban was like their version of a crown. The climax, this is a story of restoration, Like, this is exactly what happens in the marriage ceremony. Those who had chosen selfishness have now chosen love and selflessness. And there's a restoration of the roles that God gave Adam and Eve of being priests and prophets and kings and queens, right? Three roles, priests, prophets, and sovereignty or kingship. To be a king and a queen. And the last one in, in the marriage ceremony is the crowning. And it's like the apex of the service. It's the, it's the high point of the service, right? Every married couple who was married in the age of photography has some picture of them wearing crowns, right? If there's something you're not going to forget or you're not going to want to forget. It's going to be those crowns. And when the priest prays, he says, Crowns, let these crowns that we place on your servants be crowns of glory and honor crowns of blessing and salvation crowns of joy and gladness crowns of jubilation and happiness crowns of virtue and justice crowns of wisdom and understanding of heart crowns of comfort and confirmation and, and there's a few more blessings as well Joshua is crowned now in the old right the, you know the funny hat the priest wears during the liturgy it's called a tailasana, I have no idea what it's called in English, other than a crown. It's called the priestly crown, right? In the, in the old, old, old liturgical books, you'll find it would say, the priest is supposed to read the gospel during the liturgy, but he's also supposed to pray a thousand other prayers silently. So usually I pray those prayers silently, and one of the deacons reads the gospel. But if we had two priests, the priest who is serving the liturgy would pray the prayers, and the other priest, the second priest, would, would read the gospel right? And there's reasons liturgically for that. I won't go into that right now. But in the old books, it would say in the instructions, like not what is to be said, but what's to be done. It would say, now the priest takes off his crown and sets it on the, like on the lectern. So some of them would set it down on the lectern here. Some of them would set it down on the lectern right in front of them, right? And he, then he reads the gospel. Why? Because he's saying, he's trying to tell the people The word of God, the logos of the father, the second person of the Trinity is about to appear and be available to your senses. He might not appear to the eye, but he will be heard by the ear. So how dare I wear a crown in the presence of a greater king? Ever thought about it? We call Jesus the king of kings. Who are these other kings? You and me, you and me. He has crowns for you and me. In marriage prep, I bring the crowns down, everybody tries them on and stuff. You can't imagine how much fun people wear wearing a crown. If you're in a bad mood, just put a crown on. It'll make you feel better, you know, right? Right? But the priest takes the crown off and he puts it down and he says, I can't, I can't, I could never wear a crown before, same reason why women are offered a headscarf if they so wish to cover their heads, because their their hair is is their glory. So they say, let me in, in modesty, let me let me hide my glory in the glory of, of, of the greatest King, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I, I don't have face to to uh, to reveal my glory when a more glorious one is present. Not again by obligation. None of our rituals are obligation; they're privilege. They're tools of expression. Of, of, of our love and our devotion, our worship to God, right? But here, there's something, there's, the last sentence was, is actually incredibly significant. They crown Joshua. They change his clothes. They give him glorious robes. They take away his filthy rabbs, robes and they crown him with the turban that would say holiness unto the Lord on it, right? And who is standing by The angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? We said, it's Christ, the high priest. He is saying, no. I know, I know. No crown. Should be no crown for him in my presence. It's okay. It's okay. Crown him. Crown him. Crown him. Let him wear the crown today. God is saying to you, and he's saying to me, I want to give you my glory. He's willing to move The king, Jesus, is willing to move the spotlight off of him. Put the spotlight on you. Put the spotlight on you. I get it all the time. You have the spotlight for a bit. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The next uh, bit is really beautiful, but for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize it. I'm not going to go verse by verse. He gives three kind of icons. The priest, which we just did, the branch, and the stone. When he talks about the branch, in verse 8, he says, For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. You'll find Jesus is described as the branch four times in in Scripture. Once in Isaiah 11, 1-2. Once in Isaiah 4, verse 2. Once in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. And once in Zechariah 6, verse 12. And each branch is described a little bit differently, all of them referring to Christ. In in Jeremiah, he's described as the branch of the righteousness of David, which is a fulfillment, righteousness is the fulfillment of the law. And the Gospel of Matthew is all about the fulfillment of the law. You'll find each one of these descriptions of a branch corresponds to the character of a gospel. The servant branch, which uh, which is the one we just read here in Zechariah chapter three, verse eight, right? He says it is where Christ appears as a servant is very much like the Gospel of Mark. Um, when he says in Zechariah six, the man whose name is Branch, Saint Luke describes Jesus very much as the Son of Man, and the Branch of the Lord, which appears in Isaiah four verse two, is Jesus, the Son of God. And you'll find that so many there's so many little things that are just so that are just so beautiful. And the story goes on, the stone, the Messiah is, is mentioned as the cornerstone, as the stone of stumbling, as the rejected stone, as the smitten stone, and as the smiting stone, with multiple verses, but I won't trouble you with them now to, to kind of wrap up, right? And so in first, Jesus' first advent, he's described as a stumbling stone to Israel and a cornerstone for the church. In his second coming, he's only the cornerstone. He's, he's only the bridegroom. The last part I, I really want to share with you. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. This business of the stone. For behold, the stone I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Seven eyes like the omniscience of God. Behold, I engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Maybe you and I are sitting here and saying, thank you, Father John, for this message of hope and this message of grace and forgiveness, but you don't understand. I have a lifetime of sin behind me. I have a lifetime. I have a, Can God undo a lifetime like, I'd need a lifetime of good works to make up for my lifetime of wickedness. He says, In one day, I will remove the iniquity of that land, of the whole land, of the whole nation, in one day. In a single stroke, Jesus blots out all of our sins and restores us, like he restores Joshua. May God give you and give me hope, the hope of restoration, the hope that he himself is restoring us, he himself is clothing us, he himself, he himself is the one who is taking care of building, rebuilding this temple. Now one final question. If God is so gracious, if God is so merciful, if God is so kind, if God is so ready to overlook all of my past sins and faults and calls all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Ought we not to jump to it? Ought we not to up, up, like it said in chapter 2? Glory be to God forever and ever.